Today, we're speaking with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where she received her PhD in economics. Her research focuses on urban economics and land use policy and also housing affordability. Hamilton has authored numerous academic articles and policy papers, and her writings have appeared in USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. She also contributes to the blog, Market Urbanism, and I am your host, Zero Rose, and we'll be speaking on issues generally, uh, but maybe we'll hopefully uh, touch a little bit anyway on some things happening in Bloomington that uh, I think she's a little bit aware of. Maybe you should start with describing market urbanism. Sure. Thanks, Zero. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk with you. Market urbanism is the idea that many government restrictions have gotten in the way of building cities in the historical patterns that we know from places that were developed prior to current land use restrictions and zoning rules being in place. So if we look at um, many downtown areas across the U.S., those were often built prior to zoning restrictions such as single-family residential development that currently governs a lot of home building that goes on in the U.S. today. But if we go to a downtown area in many cities or to parts of the country like Boston or New York where there's a lot of old development that precedes these zoning rules, we see a mix of development oftentimes and denser development where we might see small residential structures next to commercial structures next to retail in a, a more walkable type of urbanism than what current zoning rules allow. Um, so market urbanism tries to bring together some of these goals that are often goals that progressives in the U.S. have, like walkability and affordability in housing markets, together with the idea that, that a capitalist system is often capable of delivering on these goals and that, in fact, neighborhoods built prior to a lot of today's land use restrictions can meet those progressive ideals better than more regulated um, development can today. Yeah, there's a lot of tensions that arise in these issues kind of between various sectors and it, in a way it could be seen to align a little bit with the political divides, which kind of essentially fall between rural and urban orientations overall. Have you dealt with a lot of those kind of cultural baggage issues? I know you've done some testifying on policy as at the federal and at state levels. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I often see housing as somewhat of a non-partisan issue because there are Democrats who are, are very much in favor of the status quo of preserving institutions like single-family only zoning in existing areas today. Similarly, there are Republicans who are, are very much in favor of the zoning status quo, but there are also Democrats and Republicans in favor of reform, particularly some Democratic politicians who are very concerned about housing affordability have been pursuing legislative solutions that are, are intended to improve that by 
allowing for denser housing to be built. Similarly, some Republican politicians who are very concerned about both affordability and sometimes other priorities like property rights can be in favor of reforming zoning solutions to allow for a more intensive use of property. And I know uh, environmental matters isn't quite your area of expertise, but has a little bit of that creeped in to the kind of urban planning scenario in terms of things like transportation, you know, as another component of, you know, where things are placed in, in zoning issues? Yeah, the way that cities are built has a huge effect on energy use and climate as a result. In general, denser development, more people sharing one roof, for example, is going to provide opportunities for energy efficiency in heating and cooling homes. And then on the transportation side, permitting denser development can go a long way to reducing transportation emissions, both because If people have the opportunity to live closer to job centers and they do drive to work and to other destinations where they're going, they'll often be driving shorter distances relative to what would be possible in a development pattern where uses are more segregated. And then also, it's a pattern of denser development, whether that's multifamily housing or small lot single family development, that makes transit work well or that makes walking or cycling for some trips an option. It's not just a buzzword, but one of the frameworks that's rolling around right now is the 15 minute city. Is that anywhere sort of in your models or in your? policy proposals that you back, which I I guess it's somewhat of, you know, pockets of decentralized services available to sort of obviate some of that need for transportation beyond so far and make it that walkability that you mentioned? I would say yes and no. So the 15-minute city is an idea that I believe came to prominence from Mayor Hidalgo in Paris. And she's advocated this idea that people should be able to live in a location where they can meet their daily needs within 15 minutes commutes from their house. I think that when we're talking about commuting to work, that it's simply not possible many times to get people on a broad scale living within 15 minutes of their job, particularly when we're talking about every individual having a unique scenario. Perhaps we have a household with, you know, two two adults and two kids, and they all have different schools and jobs to get to every day. The logistics of allowing for the type of development that would allow all those people to live within 15 minutes of their work and schools is kind of counter to what makes cities cities. Uh, Cities are these big agglomerations of, of people and jobs and destinations that simply can't be traversed in, in 15 minutes. But if we're talking about allowing for neighborhood level walkability, I think we, we can achieve 
neighborhoods where people live within, say, a 15-minute walk, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a grocery store, a neighborhood bar, the dry cleaner, these sorts of daily errands that can be reached within 15 minutes on foot or perhaps by bike when commercial and residential uses are allowed to be built close to each other and when residential density limits aren't preventing people from living in the type of density that makes that walkability possible. And I guess the sort of mixed use broadening of some zoning areas would, I guess, facilitate that a little bit, as in old Europe, where a lot of people lived over the store, you know, the family business situation, to bring it a little bit local, the Catalan facility here, they're giving them some tax abatements, and there's been some talk of trying to get them to, as they develop a new zone near their plant, to include some housing for the expected addition to the burden of the city and you have people that do follow jobs all over the country and move to where the job is so i could see that in a way you know again there's all the other members of the household to consider as well but it seems that a little more thought would decrease some of these issues of all the pollution created by all the anticipated transportation to get around everywhere especially as what seems to be happening here is probably what's happening about everywhere is that prices are increasing in the core. People are being pushed further and further to the perimeter for cheap housing, which then makes them have to commute. So, I mean, is that is that your experience? Is that's kind of what's going on in most places? Yes, certainly since the onset of the pandemic, there has been a big increase in housing costs in many, many parts of the country. Um, including parts of the country where housing has historically been relatively affordable. So we've seen some of the largest increases in housing costs in places like the Sun Belt, where people who previously may have been tied to a very high cost, perhaps cold part of the country for their work, who now have more of an option of remote work, they might be choosing warmer and less expensive housing markets now that that's an option to them, resulting in in big house price increases. But it's it's not just there. There's been an increase in house prices in parts of the country that have historically been more expensive as well. Yeah, I know they've done some incentivizing. I think they've pulled back some things at the state level and are kind of pushing it back to the local about incentivizing people to do remote work. And the idea here, as I have seen it, is that they're encouraging people to move to Indiana and work remotely somewhere else and then bring that revenue to Indiana. So it's kind of a whole strange inversion going on there. And again, kind of can't completely cut out these issues of climate and environment. It seems that there's a lot of people from the coasts that are moving into Indiana. seems cheap compared to what they've known on the coasts. And I know the population has increased in Indiana, while other Midwestern states it has decreased. I don't know the exact you know demographic breakdowns, where people are coming from and where they're landing. But have you seen any of that affecting these affordability issues, these kind of climate refugees in a way, these migrations? 
Well, I don't know if uh, domestic migration is being driven by what I'd call climate refugees at this point, perhaps in some very specific parts of the country, but certainly the, the shifts in demand that have come about because of increased opportunities from remote work have led to at least short-term housing affordability challenges in places that, that may not have experienced those types of demand shocks recently. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of, you know, some of the places that had all the issues with the wildfires, it, it kind of affects whole swaths and regions, not just where the fire has been with the air quality situation when that smoke is rolling everywhere. And then the mega drought, as they're calling it, in the southwest, I remember years back that it seemed that everybody was migrating southwest, you know, Texas, other places like that for the, the greater job market and everything. And it just kind of seems like it's coming back in the, the other direction a little bit. Certainly. One of the local things going on here is that the city is trying to annex, again, I'm sure this is fairly a universal experience, as cities grow, years back there was talk of peak growth or setting a limit on how far the city would grow out, and that was with environmental kind of considerations against sprawl in mind, but don't hear about that much anymore as the city is looking to annex some areas, some of which they've already put sewage and water out to. And of course, there's been a backlash of people that don't want to come under the higher taxes. I know taxes and regulations is some of the areas that you've researched on as well. Do you, do you have like particular models that you guys put forth as solutions to these kind of conflicts, ways to lessen you know, the burden that it would be seen as to be annexed into the city? I have not done research on annexation policy. There are certainly trade-offs in cases where residents may currently have lower county tax rates who don't want to pay a higher city tax rate in exchange for city services. In some cases, there's also an issue of development not paying for itself from a fiscal perspective. So, for example, if a new development is going to require a lot of new infrastructure, it's often best to have impact fees in place that are going to cover the cost of that new infrastructure in order to create a political situation where residents aren't opposing new development on the grounds that it's going to raise their own property taxes. Yeah, that seems to be a prevalent model, particularly here in Indiana, to give all the tax breaks and every incentive possible for corporations to come in you know, and choose choose that community to place in sort of like the bidding war that there was for the Amazon headquarters. It's kind of a, seems to be a bit of a race downward the way it is. You know, there's the different levels of which it's affecting the state and the county, the locality. And, and I guess that's one of the prime tensions. And I guess you fall somewhat on the side of states having more authority over local zoning decisions. Is that right, that you see localities as a prime impediment to greater density and affordability? Yes, local zoning rules are currently a big cause of housing affordability 
problems and are also a big shaper of the way that new development can be done today. Localities get their authority to implement land use regulations from their states. So state policymakers have a role to play in in shaping what that authority looks like and in ensuring that local zoning restrictions are being implemented with their effects on the state as a whole in mind. So at the, the local level, the costs of housing construction, for example, are felt most acutely. It's often the people who live directly next to a new development who are are going to notice its downsides. For example, having a little bit more traffic in their neighborhood or more people parking on the street. Whereas the benefits of new development are really widely dispersed. Primarily, they're going to go to the people who live in that new development. We don't know who they are at the time that the development's proposed, and they may not even live in that locality, so they don't get a a voice in that decision-making process, typically. But from the, the state level, policymakers have more of an incentive to weigh both the costs and the benefits of development and to consider the effects of land use restrictions across the state as a whole, not just, for example, within one small suburban jurisdiction where they're enforced. So from a legal perspective, as well as as from a policy perspective, state policymakers have a different perspective on land use restrictions relative to local policymakers and have a role to play in shaping how zoning rules can be implemented, and in some cases, in setting limits on the extent to which localities can, for example, regulate out housing construction. We've seen states, state policymakers, experimenting in this area with, for example, new laws that give homeowners across entire states the right to build an accessory dwelling unit. So to add a a basement apartment or a garage apartment or a backyard cottage, several states have passed laws that prevent localities from banning accessory dwelling units. There's a little bit of an issue with responsiveness to a community the further it gets away from the locality and the kind of top down. Obviously, there needs to be a balance, but uh, there can be some, uh, some problems that wise, I know that things like somewhat agricultural uses, like confined animal feeding operations that localities were banning, they sort of went in for capturing politicians to, at the state level, prevent the locality from banning, you know, a massive pig farm or chicken operation uh, that has some very drastic impacts, you know, just the smell, let alone uh, some of the environmental issues there. Is there any kind of model for some kind of arbitration sort of between such interests? Yeah, I'm not sure that I can point you to a a good model of that type of arbitration, but I think that's a really interesting and important question. Prior to zoning that localities used to try to, to mediate these disputes, there was nuisance law that property owners could use the courts to say, you know, my neighbor has this smelly chicken farm or my neighbor's polluting on my property or my neighbor's making too much noise. 
an attempt to use the court system as a way to either stop the use that might have been causing the nuisance or to come to some agreement between the two conflicting property owners. That is a very costly way to try to come to a solution that that works for people. We know that zoning is also a very costly system in terms of causing lots of housing affordability problems and preventing people from living in the locations where their best job opportunities might be located. So some type of alternative system to either nuisance law or the current zoning system could perhaps have some of the benefits of both. I don't know what that system looks like. There are international models of zoning that work very differently. For example, in Japan, at the national level, different zoning designations are determined and then localities have the ability to implement where those different zoning designations are going to be within their jurisdictions. So there's less opportunity for something like very low-density residential zoning under the Japanese system relative to what we have here. I believe there's also a little bit of a movement around things like healthcare to sort of have organizations sort of gather stakeholder input and make sure that the entities, the departments, the officials at least have to listen to them for a little bit as they're making decisions. It seems like certainly an area for growth and maybe uh, carving something new that might smooth some of these tensions. Are there any uh, trends or programs or projects going on that you think should be highlighted as good models of moving moving forward to create more affordability? Yeah, there's been a, a nationwide, well, not nationwide, there have been um, states, policymakers and local policymakers across the country looking at uh, what's sometimes known as missing middle housing as um, an opportunity to improve housing affordability. I know policies have been debated and in some cases implemented in Bloomington that are along the lines of this missing middle effort that we've seen in, in other locations across the country. Missing middle housing, um, sometimes called gentle density, I've referred to it as, as light touch density in some cases, is generally encompasses anything that falls between a detached single family house and a bigger apartment building. So it could be a single family house with an ADU, with that garage apartment. It could be attached single family houses like townhouses or row houses. They could be duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes, various configurations of more than one unit, but less than a large apartment building. Missing middle housing has a few advantages from an affordability perspective. It allows households to each take up less land than would be required for a typical detached single family house with its own yard. And it's also less expensive to build on a per square foot basis than a big multifamily building with perhaps structured parking and elevators um, that add to the per square foot construction costs. 
On the other hand, what we've seen across the country is that the rules all have to be just right for missing middle housing to get built in large numbers. For example, in Bloomington, there's a requirement that in some neighborhoods, duplexes would have to go through a process of getting a conditional use permit in order to be built. And that type of permitting process adds costs and uncertainty to whether or not a project that someone has an idea for is something that can actually get built. And that type of barrier with missing middle housing tends to prevent it from getting built. Because in this case, we're talking about, say, going from one to two units with an expensive and uncertain regulatory process. If we're talking about a big apartment building, we might be talking about going from, you know, a strip mall to a big apartment building. So going through an uncertain regulatory process when you're going to be building 50 or 100 apartment units might be worthwhile, might be something that developers are willing to overcome in order to build that project. But if we're talking about adding a duplex or adding an ADU, that type of regulatory process is rarely going to make sense for someone to risk their time and money on in order to get perhaps one additional unit built. I guess there is a range in there of what you're calling missing middle. Is there kind of an upper range of cutoff where you would still consider it something in the middle? I mean, as far as like stories, or square footage or something? I think many people would cut out cut it off at four units per lot. Personally, I like the definition of cutting it off at an elevator building because that's where we're talking about a really different model of construction and construction costs. So I would refer to, um, say, a, a three or four story walk-up building as missing missing middle or light touch density or gentle density based on, on that definition. Yeah, I've seen the model that uh, I think his name is Chakrabarty uh, talked about on the TEDx that uh, I sent you and you seemed a little skeptical about how he was talking about how we could house billions more people as is projected to happen by the end of the century with, I think, things within that range of uh, about four stories instead of the towers. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, uh, your skepticism about that model. Well, I like missing middle Goldilocks zone as something that's proven to be a politically feasible way to permit a little bit more infill development in U.S. cities. We've seen localities and states implementing these solutions, and in some cases, Missing middle housing is a large portion of the type of, of housing that's getting built in, in some parts of the country. My skepticism from his approach was that that middle level of density can be more energy efficient than a large apartment building because it's not just the carbon that's used to build the building that we should be thinking about. It's also the living patterns of the people who are going to live in this development that 
creates the holistic picture of, of energy use and climate impact. Within the U.S., New York City residents have the smallest carbon footprint of anywhere in the country. And that's because many of them do live in large apartment buildings. They may take mass transit or walk to work and may not have a car at all. They may share the cost of heating or cooling their housing with everyone else who lives in their building. So my skepticism is that less density can be more climate efficient than more density based on the the building type alone. Yeah, and I guess it can be mitigated a bit by schemes like uh, shared vehicles and parking garages for bicycles, covered bike racks, things like that. And I guess that's something that the 15-minute city idea speaks to a bit, as a lot of industry just kind of not in the country anymore, and things are more service-oriented, and office jobs can be done remotely. That seems to give a little bit in, the, in, the, in that direction of lessening all the need for transportation as part of the cost of surviving. Certainly, remote work can can lessen the need for commuting for people who have the option of working remotely, but the majority of trips are not commuting trips. They're people going to the grocery store or other errands or visiting friends. So those may change, but I don't think they're going to to go away, even no matter how much remote working we have. Certainly having the opportunity to do some of those errands on foot or by transit or bike is a more energy efficient way to do them than driving for all of those. Yeah, one of the uh, sort of jewels uh, that a lot of people thought was an overpriced vanity project was the Beeline Trail here in town, bike trail. And they've done a little bit of development along it. There is housing that is actually on the edge of it, kind of as a alternate transit corridor. And there was, there was another place called Bicycle Apartments where you were not allowed to own a vehicle in order to, to be there as part of the intake process. So there's there's a little bit of that going on here locally. I, I don't think they're so much you know requiring people not to have a vehicle, but facilitating more ways where they, they don't need one. And I, I know, I think it was out maybe in Oregon, some of the developments I've seen where they were setting up these transit lines that could be train or bus. That's a continual thing that's going every 15 minutes. And then that as a corridor for development to build along so that the commute is less of a typical commute. Have you seen any uh, examples of that, that that have kind of fulfilled, you know, the stated aims? Yeah. As we discussed, there's been a recent focus on gentle density um, within the last few years, but say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there was much more focus on what's often called transit-oriented development, where small parts of a city or region are very well served by transit, and the areas around those transit stops are places where large multifamily developments or large office buildings or just generally more intensive land use is permitted. There are a few places where transit-oriented development has been really successful. I would say one of them is Arlington County, Virginia, where I work. 
during the 1970s, there was an extension of the DC's metro system that opened through the north part of the county. And the county policymakers redid zoning policy to permit transit-oriented development around those new stations. And it's facilitated a lot of multifamily construction. Now, Arlington's expensive, but if we compare it to other high-income coastal parts of the country, it's much more affordable than a Bay Area or a New York City or Boston or L.A., in part because Northern Virginia has been much more receptive to um, transit-oriented development and multifamily construction relative to those other regions. And from a, a, a traffic point of view, it's been a success as well. Congestion in some parts of Arlington has actually gone down over the past decades as a larger percent of the county's residents are living in places where they take metro to work or they can even walk to their office or might work from home rather than commuting by car in into their jobs. That was kind of one of the trade-offs with these rail-to-trail scenarios that have happened here in Indiana. I mean, this was a quarry town and there were mills, sawmills and things. And so you have the trains coming right through town, but those have now been converted to walkable, bikeable trail lines that could have been, you know, it seems to me that they could have doubled the easement or something and sort of had a parallel usage going on, at least like some kind of tram system. There used to be a light rail system all throughout the state here that was all ripped out basically when buses were devised so people could completely traverse the state in a day and get to Chicago and wherever you needed to. Now that is no more. And I I noticed that in this annexation uh, situation, the city's been pretty clear that part of their decisions on where they want to develop to are related to arterial highways and things, presumably to make the development a little easier as far as the heavy trucks and transport. But I-69 was for many, many years fought uh, for going through virgin forests and splitting up, you know, family farmstead homes and things. And there was an area that they were going to develop on the north side. But after other examination of the current uses, and I don't know, the topography, they decided not to include that in the annexes, even though it was toward the major transportation corridor that did go through, that did get put in. It seems to make the primary focus of everything development. I mean, does everything need to be developed? Does every area need to be densified? Does that mean that places that are a little more wide open, that are a little more what people consider human scale, more comfortable, are those just doomed? Do you see where a balance could be struck with that? Obviously, people have excluded people of other races. And as people did the urban flight, they set up sub- suburban situations to get away from the poor people and, and these type of things. But is it necessarily that someone who wants a home and a yard, do you see them as necessarily an impediment to progress? Do they have any kind of right to want that kind of quiet existence that they, and things like they used to call sleepy bedroom communities? Certainly. I think there's absolutely a role for 
for low density development and for people to continue living in detached single family houses across the U.S. That's uh, the majority of the country's housing stock. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. What I focus on is liberalizing land use laws to make a denser pattern of development legal for those who do want it. Those who are are currently not well served by rules like detached single family zoning that prevents anything else as an option. Conflicts certainly arise when people who live in an existing low density residential neighborhood don't want to see their neighbors changing their property to allow more people to live there. And that that's where this debate comes in is whether rules that outlaw anything other than detached single family development should be reformed to increase development rights, perhaps improve housing affordability and walkability, or if the current zoning regime should stay. Yeah, clearly things like gated communities and developments where it's regulated what shade of beige you can paint your mailbox, those are clearly pretty exclusionary setups. There's just different dispositions of people, I think. Some people are more comfortable in a more dense setting and situation. Other people like their privacy and they're quiet. So, and that's often the maybe false dichotomy that's put in place against development. And it's generally because people don't feel like they have any control or any say over what's going on around them very much. So maybe they kind of overcompensate and get into everybody else's business a bit much. In terms of that, I believe with the uh, ADUs here locally, there was a requirement to inform your neighbors within a couple of lots, any direction around you that you're you're gonna build an auxiliary dwelling unit. But they kind of dropped that because they said, there's nothing that anybody could say against that. So there's not a mechanism for anybody trying to block that really. But then they talked about just the kind of thing of communicating with your neighbors, make sure they understand what's going on. Maybe there's gonna be more traffic down this alley or something like that. It seems that there's, you know, I called it arbitration or stakeholder. It seems that some kind of other body that could kind of maybe come into these situations. I know there's conflict resolution organizations that kind of arbitrate between parties on a whole range of issues that maybe maybe some of that would uh, smooth the waters on some of these things that just become implacable uh, conflicts. Certainly cases like building an accessory dwelling unit, for example, where um, perhaps we'd hope that neighbors could just work this out between themselves and come to a solution that everyone's happy with. In some cases, local policymakers institute like community meetings or other types of platforms for giving residents an opportunity to talk about their concerns about development. One thing that the data about who attends these meetings reveals is that it's often older, high-income people who spend their time attending these meetings, and they tend to draw out people who are opposed to a proposal for new development rather than being representative of a community's residents as a whole. So I think there are pluses and minuses to 
localities trying to provide a way for residents to provide community input. Yeah, it would require a bit of a proactive advocacy and maybe some more something more like an ongoing forum online or something rather than an event to come and vent your frustrations. See, the other thing with the duplex was quite feared and there is a quality to these core neighborhoods that it's very charming and that people are kind of scrambling to get a piece of to get one of these older small you know sort of legacy historical homes and so they were worried about the duplexes and the triplexes sort of moving in what has happened more toward campus which is kind of absentee landlord situation at the end of every semester here's everything in the trash out on the curb you know let alone the the tracks of drunken students coming to and from the strip kind of issues raising ruckus but apparently there haven't been a lot of applications or i think any at this point to put in duplexes or triplexes in the areas that it's now going to be allowed and i guess that's a bit ratcheted by region i don't think it's quite blanket and another one i heard about was that the townhomes that are being put in in a place and they were talking the difference between two bedrooms and three bedrooms they have three car garages below three bedrooms above and it's to be oriented toward families in this family zone but because it has the three bedrooms they're calling it student housing by the designation because it's anticipated that that's what it'll really become no matter what stated original use is have you uh, seen anything that has sort of addressed those kind of conflicts i mean this is bloomington indiana that was in the famous movie breaking away with the conflict between town and gown yeah huge fan of breaking away there are many college towns in the country where land use is a big concern. Boulder, Colorado, for example, was a pioneering locality in identifying ways to make it difficult to build housing. And they have ridiculously high housing costs in large part as a result of the policies that were pursued to make it hard to build housing for students or for anyone. You know, it can certainly be legitimate quality of life concerns when you, you have a big population of perhaps rowdy 20-year-olds in a, in a neighborhood, but trying to address those quality of life concerns by preventing housing from being built is going to have consequences not just for those students, but for anyone who's trying to afford housing in Bloomington. And then also, of course, from the student perspective, rules that make it expensive to live in the location where a state's flagship university is located are also limiting who can afford to attend that state resource. Well, um, maybe uh, we could sort of wrap up with you actually telling a little bit more about yourself. You said you're working in the Virginia area, maybe where you grew up. Did you come up in an urban situation? And are you in a more dense city now? I think I saw that you've worked in Baltimore at a point. Maybe you want to say where you're from and the trajectory of your life as far as, you know, intersecting with these issues. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Grand Junction, Colorado, which is a relatively small town in western Colorado. Definitely not a big city. I then went to college in Baltimore and then ended up in Washington, D.C. after that. I live in D.C. now and work in Arlington, Virginia, which are both quite urban 
walkable places. The way I got interested in this issue was actually in Grand Junction, Colorado, where I interned in the city planning department for a few summers when I was off from college. And just through that experience, became aware of all of the barriers that exist to building more walkable and lower cost housing all across the country. So while I didn't grow up in a a particularly urban place, I learned to understand some of the rules that are blocking that more traditional urban type of development. And maybe one other thing on one of these sort of uh, in-between models that I've heard about laws, you mentioned D.C. I think it might have started in D.C. in the 80s. Some law that would give renters the right of, in a way, veto or at least some say in who, if their landlord property owner is going to sell, who they can sell it to. Are you aware of any of those laws that are kind of bubbling up? D.C. has a program that requires tenants to have the option of purchasing a building when a landlord is going to sell it. I would say that these rules that are intended to be tenant protections have benefits and downsides for tenants themselves. Because in D.C., for example, that can be a big barrier to landlords because when they do want to sell their building, it can be a very long and difficult process for them, which in turn is uh, a disincentive to build rental housing by making it worse investment. We see that tenants often have the worst situations in some of the regions that have the most tenant protections. New York City, for example, is a really, really difficult place to be a renter looking for housing, in part because it's really, really difficult to evict tenants in New York City. So landlords want to be extremely careful about being sure that the person they're renting to is going to have no problem at all affording the housing that they're renting them. You know, like many things that we've, we've talked about today, there are benefits and costs to these policies that are intended to help tenants. And uh, I guess that's one of the only contexts I've heard about things like rent control. I'm wondering if there are any other mechanisms to keep prices low and whether those would have any downsides and whether there are entities aside from HUD, you know, projects and things that sort of acquire and build housing for the sake of housing people, not so much a profit incentive. My preferred policy for improving access to housing on the subsidy side is something like HUD's uh, current voucher system, but expanded to more people on the basis of income eligibility Relative to something like public housing, that program gives the beneficiaries more freedom in where they want to live, what type of unit they want to live in. I'd actually like to see HUD experiment with a cash system rather than housing vouchers, just direct income supports. I think most attorneys would say that that would require Congress to to change the, the program, not something that HUD can do. Just because someone has a Section 8 voucher doesn't mean it's going to be accepted anywhere. 
So a lot of people presume that because people have that, that they can find housing and there's actually a whole lot of discrimination about that. And you even see it on certain realty sites and things do not take section eight, you know, and it would simply be them just kind of registering and, you know, have to go through an inspection. So to right. kind of have that in there, that's something that's not currently illegal. Would that have to be, I guess, at a, a federal level or through some mechanism of if you don't do this, we'll hold back these block grants or something like that? Potentially, yeah. There are some states or localities that prevent what's called source of income discrimination. Well, that'll do it, I suppose. So thank you, Emily. Thank you. It was great talking with you.